Sonic Statesman.com Hello and welcome everybody. That little fanfare indicates how special this particular episode is because this is our 50th episode and if you're into cricket that means a half century. So um, we're very pleased to be able to welcome um, PJ Tracy from Minneapolis. Good morning. How are you? I'm fantastic and happy to be here. Good. I'm glad to hear it. And and your line quality seems particularly marvellous today. I don't know whether the uh, the powers that be have just sort of managed to, I don't know, open the channels they, for us on this very auspicious day. Somehow I doubt it. stepped in. And um, we've also got John Musgrave. Good afternoon. Hello, John. Up in London. How is it? Is it hot and humid and horrid? It's overcast and sticky. Yes, it's very sticky here. And... Um, uh, and someone who'll know about that, who's actually in the same office, we're both sitting here a bit sweaty. Well, I'm speaking for myself. Uh, I've got Dave Spears. Hello, Dave. Hello. Dave came down to Bath on business and just happened to pop in, which was very kind of him, because it means that um, I've got someone to look at rather than just a white wall in front of my face. But it does mean I have to put some clothes on, obviously. Yes, it is true. He really does do this show naked. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, of course, Mark Tinley. Hello. How are you, Mark? I'm very well, thank you. Haven't had any uh, any un- unwelcome guests dropping into the river recently, or you had a quite fairly quiet week? No, we've had lots of police activity, because I think they've been trying to work out what actually happened, people measuring things. And, really? A uh, very nice policeman came round and interviewed me, Right. and then let my two-year-old sit in his car and switch his siren on, which was fantastic. Wow. So we did all that, yeah. So are they checking out your skid marks, are they? <laughs> and the like boom, boom. well that's all the important stuff isn't it you know because you know how well anyway no let's not go there right what you're hearing in the background is the uh, Yamaha Minimo MM6 and believe it or not this week being the 50th episode Yamaha UK have very very kindly donated an MM6 Minimo up for grabs as a prize can't believe it that's worth nearly 700 bucks or 350 quid it's got a motif engine. You know, sounds quite contemporary, wouldn't you say, Dave? It does, yeah. That's all apparently onboard sounds. You can go and check them out at uh, mm6music.co.uk. Um, but what they want to know, to win your prize, there is only one, and they will ship worldwide because they can get a power supply from wherever they are. They'll just, well, anyway, they'll figure it out. Is how many voices does an MM6 have, or how many patches, that is, how many total patches. You can find this out if you go to mm6music.co.uk, or if you stay tuned, I might try and slip it into the podcast a bit later on. So it's kind of like bribery to keep listening. So anyway, there you go. Thanks very much to Yamaha UK for helping us out and uh, continuing to help us out, and especially for their generous prize. Marvellous. Right, I've got all the pluggery out of the way. We can. Uh, has anyone had anything particularly exciting happening to them this week? I suppose... Um, we could start, actually, because me and Dave and, uh, and Andy, we you know, went up to the Faster Than Sound uh, Music Festival in Oldberg at the Bentwaters Air Base. It was a very strange journey, wasn't it? It took a long time. Yeah, we got lost, basically, because <laughs> yours truly You got lost bother. in East Anglia. Yeah, yeah, we got lost. Well, we drove all the way to the coast, and uh, we got to the seaside town of Oldberg, because I thought, hey, there's bound to be a sign somewhere, surely, as it's the Oldberg Music Festival. You know, you'd think. And um, we, we got to the, actually, to the end, to the beach, when, and then there was this sort of breakwater that had loads of parking on it. Didn't know what was at the end. And, and Dave jumped out of the car and asked the local coach driver, so where's the festival? And the bloke pointed up the end of the breakwater. So we thought, that seems a bit weird. So off we went until we finally realised the guy was actually having a laugh. So I drove back <laughs> into town, <laughs> found... found local humour. Exactly, local humour. <laughs> he did have uh, hairy palms, I think, but... Anyway, we found, a, we found a local tourist information office and I asked the nice lady in there and she said, oh no, you want to go back this way and we went, ended up going to Reynoldsburg, which is where it was and if I'd actually bothered to, um, to read the instructions a bit more carefully, then we wouldn't. So we were a bit late. But we got there and it's on this massive air, air base, this old US air base. It's huge, absolutely huge and uh, it was an incredible place actually and um, we were very fortunate um, to talk to Plaid, her electronic music duo who also uh, were known as Black Dog back in the day. They were sort of pioneers of kind of glitchy kind of stuff before I think perhaps before you know Aphex and, and Square Push uh, theirs wasn't quite as extreme but they've been doing it a very long time they were an early war pact uh, we talked to a chap called Joby Burgess who was J- Burgess who was an incredible percussionist and we talked to 
the modified toy orchestra who were absolutely brilliant by called Brian Duffy. And what he does is he collects, um, well, toys, children's toys, circuit bends them and gets an ensemble to play them. And I can hear you probably thinking internally, oh, it just sounds like rubbishy art, you know, concept nonsense. And I mean, there is an aspect to, to the philosophy behind it, but it's absolutely brilliant and kind of really quite happening and contemporary, but also melodic and poppy at the same time. Wouldn't you say, Dave? Uh, yeah, they were superb. My favourite was Joby Burgess, I have to say, as a percussion player. Yeah, he was very good. So yeah, we had a marvellous time and um, that's what we did. And there's a couple of video reports. I've done one, um, which was of this uh, amazing instrument that's a kind of, well, it's about, it looks like a hundred metres of, of wire, just a single wire with a couple of freaky speakers at either end and you sort of twang it and hit it with things and it sounds absolutely incredible. And there's a video piece up on the site at the moment. I put it up yesterday, so you can have a look at that. And uh, more to come. And as the edit edits mount up, we'll be adding more and more things. So anybody else um, have any fun this week or weekend? Nothing nearly as exciting as that. Oh, I that sounds really good. It was fun. I, I went think... to my mother-in-law's 65th birthday party. Well, that could be fun too. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, yes, I, do, I was thinking of you. And next year, you'll definitely have to come. Because I think, I think if it's on next year, um, they hope it will be. It's, it's well worth it. A watch. Well, it sounds like it's right up my street, and it's actually a lot closer to my house than my mother-in-law's house is. Yeah, we must have crossed somewhere <laughs> at, the, at some kind of equilateral point. When did you drive up? Were you driving? Yeah, well, I drove two hundred odd miles in the wrong direction for this, didn't I? So you went as far west, we went as far east, and somewhere there was, a, there was a zenith in the middle. I was talking to we 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 went to Blackpool, but I was talking to Nick about Blackpool, Nick Rhodes, who yep. I'm not allowed to mention. I think I know. And he was telling me that he was in a private plane once and just missed Blackpool Tower by sort of a few inches. It sort of whizzed past his left ear and he thought he was going to die and everything. So, Oh, my Lord. Crazy. Well, the, that, that, oh, wow. the, was he, uh, did he have a, an airplane full of floozies and they were sort of doing all sorts of nefarious things? Yeah, have to be rock I'm and roll. Sure, yeah. Somebody <laughs> was trying to throw a TV out the window at the time. I do hope so. It would be a bit sad if it was just he was on his way to, I don't know, Anyway, Tesco's or something. Tesco's, he was yeah, on just, his way to Tesco's in way. a private plane. Uh, yeah, to pick up a pint of milk. <laughs> Fancied a cup of tea. Shall we begin? Or shall we... Um... Yeah, oh yeah, no, Dave brought a bottle of champagne. Too it's bad. the 50th episode, so we can just have... We cue sound effects. So we'll just open this bottle of champagne and, and we'll be... Uh, we'll save you all a glass. Hey, there we go. That was the bottle. And... It's a nice bottle of Verve Clico, nineteen ninety nine. Oh, thanks, Dave. I can chink glasses with you, but I've got Ribena. That's all right. I know you don't drink, so that's that's just as valid. So hold on, we'll we'll. Uh... Cheers, chaps. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. Just like to Cheers. say at this point to all everybody who's participated and has and continues to, thank you very very much for all your participation and patience and um, you know good nature throughout all this. So here's here's to you. Thank you very much. Mm. Here's to another 50, if you can face it. <laughs> this is Mike Adams with Moog Music, wishing Andy, Nick, and all the folks at Sonic State the very best on their 50th podcast. There you go, that's Mike Adams there, CEO of Moog Music, wishing us a happy 50th. Right, anyway, shall we move on and do a topic? Why not? Let's. Let's, sure. right. I was I was struggling a bit for topics this week, although I had a few left over from last week, and suddenly I saw this, and this was on um, the Future Music blog. Uh, it's not Future Music as in the Future Music magazine, but the American Future Music, if that makes any sense. And he said he just found this, um, there was a YouTube video of the top 20, uh, sorry, the top 10 Star Wars sound effects. Did anyone get a chance to listen to this? There's some absolutely classic ones in there. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was posted by a chap called Digital Dave 1234 which sounds a bit like a a sort of copyright <laughs> avoidance sort of nom de plume to me, but fair enough. Because uh, apparently up until recently, wasn't George Lucas real sort of vehement uh, opposer of any kind of sharing of stuff? And then suddenly he's changed his mind and it's all all right. And he's sort of allowing people to do mashups and stuff. This is the Carbonite Freezer. Somebody called Tambor. The Techno Union Army is at your disposal count. Sounded like your Furby there, Mark, but with an octave on it. Uh, 
Poggle the lesser. The TIE Fighters. Any particular favourites for, for anybody? Yeah, you just played mine, the TIE Fighters. The TIE Fighters, definitely. they do sound great, don't they? I wonder why they were called TIE Fighters. Do they look like bow ties, possibly? Could be. <laughs> Obviously, I shouldn't imagine Darth Vader or any of his evil gang know anything about bow ties. This was all that the whole stuff was made by a chap called Ben Burt, who's been making doing sound design for the Star Wars series, you know, from the year dot, and he's responsible for, for all of those classic ones and some of the more recent ones, like that Poggle, um, Poggle the Lesser, you know, which was kind of almost like it was, it was almost like um, well, it's just like stutter editing and all sorts of weird granula- granulation stuff it was absolutely fantastic and still really cutting edge. And it just, um, I just sort of thought, well, what a lot of fun. And it kind of took me back because I remember going to see the first, the first Star Wars film. Where, did anyone see the first Star Wars or am I just showing my age? Yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah. I've only oh. seen the first three. Twice. I remember, because um, I, um, I went to Paris with my mum for the weekend on a coach. You know, it was one of those kind of cheapo getaways that you saved up packets of cereal tokens or whatever. And we went to uh, Paris and Star Wars was on and we thought, great. And we... We sort of rather haltingly, in our fronglish, managed to talk to the bloke on the desk of the cinema, and he said, "Oh yeah, no, it's subtitles, so it'll be in English." So there we go. We sit down, and of course it was dubbed. So uh, I didn't actually get, get. I mean, it didn't make. You know, they, they, they've always said that George Lucas can't do dialogue, so it didn't really matter that much. But you know, you got the gist of it. I'm assuming they hadn't dubbed R two D two. Oh, who was that? That was a classic R two D two there. Uh, me, PJ. Very good. Are you a fan of the? Are you are you a fan of the Star Wars trilogy? Well, it's not a trilogy anymore, was it? It's kind of quad. The sextet. Sextet. Yeah. <laughs> sextet. Hey, nice. I like I like the first three very much, and as a matter of fact, when they reissued um, the films with Lucas's add-ons, his digital enhancements, so to speak, back in the late nineties, uh, I lived a couple of blocks from a movie theater, and I'll uh, let you in on a little bit of geeky admission here that every sunday night they would show it show the film for half price and i went to see the empire strikes back eight times in the movie theater that's oh, yes. well done <laughs> that is actually quite geeky but you know good yeah. on you the subsequent ones i mean i, I can't remember, even remember what they were called the, first, the, the this new batch when i went to see uh, the one with jar jar binks and whatever in it i i went to saw it, i thought it was dreadful i mean really yeah. appalling i mean i i, I I thought it was an incredibly lazy plot. It was like Scooby Doo, wasn't it? With this, the, but I didn't like it. I thought the effects were good, but everything else about it was blooming awful. I'm with you. Oh, good. Not just me. Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Thing. I thought it. I thought it was uh, the perfect advertisement for selling video games, T-shirts, posters, and uh, Pepsi. Well, and the, the next, I suppose, what really brought me this into focus was, you know, whether or not anyone had ever done any sound effects work and how. You know, how do you approach it? I don't know. Uh, I know, Dave, you, you've just done some stuff, haven't you? I mean, mm. how, uh, is that something you've done before? Or uh, Yeah, I have done a couple of uh, bits and pieces. Um, it's really brilliant, actually. It can either be the most frustrating job or it can be the most enjoyable job, depending on um, how good the movie is and how good you are on the day. And whether you've got to synchronise it to action, presumably, because that's a pig, isn't Nine it? Nine times out of ten, you always do that. But what amazes me is that that inevitably gets changed at some point during the edit. So you can spend hours and hours and hours and hours getting stuff absolutely synced up, and then they'll move it. And you kind of think, oh, God, I should have just thrown them a load of sounds. Yeah. Um, but the latest one was good. That was uh, a load of sea monsters, and the brief was Scare Kids. So, <laughs> did which I'm naturally <laughs> quite good at, yeah. <laughs> so what sort of stuff did you use to create this kind of, you know, what, what are the tools of the trade for that kind of thing? Uh, well, this was, a, like I say, sea monsters. Um, I'll let you into a secret. One of the key tools was Melodyne. So if you take something like a bird call, put it into Melodyne, you can take it down an octave or so, and then you can stretch it and stretch it. And obviously you can, if you use the, as opposed to the Melodyne plugin, if you use the real Melodyne, you can output that as MIDI data. So then you can wrap that up with some kind of synthesized noise. That's why I really like that TIE fighter noise, because actually underneath there is an animal of sorts. Yeah. And uh, they've just kind of stretched it beyond recognition. When you when you watch those effects of from Star Wars, you can 
um, the older movies clearly there's um, they've been made up of, of a mixture of sort of technology and real sounds, whereas a lot of the more recent movies it just sounds like a lot of technology. Certainly, yeah, and I prefer the older stuff. It's, it's just sort of more organic, isn't it? Particularly that you know the stuff like that Tie Fighter. I remember in the early '80s seeing a, a documentary with Ben Burt, and uh, one of the only things I remember about it is watching him walk around with um, some type of field recorder at the time, and he was banging um little ball peen hammers on the guy wires of telephone poles and that's how he came up with the blaster sound he just uh, uh pitch module because that sounded like it sounds like um the way that rail tracks sound don't they when in fact it sounds very similar to the sound that that instrument that we saw at faster the same was when you when he twanged it mm. or in fact when the dog ran over it <laughs> ran through it that are just quick story well, this guy set up the 100-meter you know, length of wire and he'd put tape on it for all the fundamentals because it had amazing harmonics. So, you know, you'd hit it where this piece of yellow tape was and you'd get a C or whatever. And then they just finished setting up and this dog just ran straight across it, tangled up, and it went twang and they had to start all over again. But anyway, that's an aside. <laughs> um, Mark, is there something you've, you've been involved in, anything like this? Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I think... I've been involved in writing music for video a long, long time ago and doing sound effects for things. Opening cans of Coca-Cola and recording them for a 7-Up advert, actually. But, um, <laughs> um, and all, all that sort of stuff, yeah. I've been fascinated by recording things for years and years, and I always get weird looks from people when I pull out some kind of recorder and start tapping the top of um, letterboxes and things like that. They make a really good noise, those old cast iron dome topped little letter boxes you get more interesting sounds working that way don't you if you sit in front of a computer and twig it around with samples it can be a bit you know it's very depressing. involving i mean because i i did a, a whole load of sound effects for a kid's um, cartoon game ages ago and uh, I, i'd create as many of them as i could um, but i couldn't withstand the force of purchasing the Hanna barbera and warner brothers uh, sample cd collections and that you know because they're it's quite you know, you can do only do so much yourself. Um, well, you could, I could probably have done the whole lot myself, but given the time constraints and the budget, I had to kind of just get on with it. So I ended up using some of those as basis for them, and that was that was fascinating because in the, in the catalogue it actually explains what they were doing. So it says pouring a bucket of pebbles down a wooden chute. You know, and you just, oh, I, I, I would so love to have been around and worked in sound effects creation back in the sort of mm. cartoon days. That would have been my dream reincarnation. You know, that would have been my golden age. I loved all of that stuff. So like the crazy bongos when someone runs off. Yeah. Yes. I spoke to a guy who worked in um, Air Lindhurst and uh, doing all the sound for EastEnders. And his job was to put all the foley in before it went out, before the episode went out. So and did, it did things like going around the yard, sweeping leaves and recording it and smashing yeah. cabbages with big hatchets. And then he'd gone off to Folkestone or something to go on a fishing boat and he'd recorded some waves at the front and the waves at the back and everything. And I was very green with envy, I have to say, because that would Fuck be my ideal stuff. job, I think. It's funny, actually, because the funny thing... I mean, you touched upon this last week, Dave, when you were talking about um, Chris, who'd gone off to record waterfalls, and they just sounded like a load of toilets flushing. Because the thing is is you think, oh, I need, you know, a sound like this. So you go and record it, and it actually doesn't sound like what you think it does. And you have to kind of design a, a kind of, almost a caricature of the sound to make sure that you understand that, that the sound sounds like what it's supposed to. Do you know what I mean? And so it's, it's quite an interesting set of psychological problems and, and, you know, areas that you, and a lot of that stuff, you just have to find out for yourself because you come back and you go, oh, I've got to record all this stuff. And you, look, you listen to it and it just seems really weak when you put it in place. Some Foley artists really, really guard their secrets. The one that annoys me the most is when uh, you have motorcycles in movies, and I think there was one with Lara Croft riding a Buell, and it sounded like a four-cylinder motorcycle. It was completely the wrong stand for the bike. You are not the and guy to have in the audience. Right in my nose. <laughs> Did you stand up and walk out in disgust, shout and sh- wave, your, wave your fist at the screen, shouting some sort of... No, I just kept pointing at it. It's making the wrong noise. <laughs> and everybody looked at you and sort of moved away. Was, was it a crowded cinema? Let's <laughs> bring a real motorcycle in and prove yeah. them. This is what it should sound like. <laughs> oh, sorry. I don't know if that was two or four cylinder there, but I'm just having a go. Uh, John, how about you? I've done a few bits and bits. I mean, I think with a lot of sort of popular music now, you've got a lot of effects in it which sound not unlike the kind of things you see in telly. Actually, does that make any sense? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just being honest. You know, it didn't make any sense at all, frankly. Um, 
Yeah, anything goes these days, basically. And if you can create a sound from scratch by hitting something. Yeah. Well, maybe Timberland's probably a good example. Of that. I know we keep going on about him, but he seems he tends to use kind of all sorts of strange percussive devices. Obviously, compresses the hell out of him to get. A I've just spent the last two weeks going through a whole load of his recordings, the Duran Duran stuff. Oh yeah. And I find some of it very, very, very bizarre. Like the, the feel thing on the MPC 3000, I guess they've used one of those for the main drum loop in this. And they seem to have synced it up to Pro Tools and just recorded the whole loop. You know, no separation or anything. And, and it's not exactly in time with the grid all the way through the, the session, which I think's a bit odd, really. Well, no, but you hear some of their stuff and it's totally out of time. But that's half the, yeah. that's half the thing, because, because it's... The way that he worked, because he's so minimalist, you could you can focus on that, and it can give you a little bit of extra kind of. And the number of vocal tracks, and the the, the track with Justin Timberlake, there's about maybe forty stacked vocal tracks for Justin's part. Wow, really? Loads and loads and loads of harmonies and stuff stacked and stacked and stacked on top of each other. So what? So do tell. Come on, what's his naming convention like? Does he colour things in kind of a, a really fancy way, or is he? I mean, is he? <laughs> no. no? <coughs> just throw I, mean, I think his programmer is a chap called Jimmy Douglas. Right. And there's another chap called Nate. Uh, I thought I was untidy as a programmer. So <laughs> I don't want to say anything bad about the guy. It took me a while to find things and understand how he, you know, how he'd worked. But um, once I sort of figured out where he'd put things and how he was working, it, it actually started to make sense. It's pretty meticulous, actually. It, I, I get the impression that perhaps he's sort of a man of the moment. So if it happens. He'll then just kind of go into a flurry and just get on with it and track those vocals really quickly or throw down a load of percussion parts or whatever, because it does sound like there's quite a lot of happy accidents in what he does. I think, yeah, you might be right. He must also play a lot of the instruments because it says things like Tim's guitar and on some of the tracks. So I guess he's played guitar on things. So I didn't know he was a guitar player. Yeah, I think there's, there's in the new album, there's quite a lot of like, guitar riffs and some, because a lot of them are just kind of quite raw and kind of meters like you know that that kind of vibe i mean i'm so used with with duran duran to putting everything specifically and exactly on the grid so i'm so used to that sound it was kind of weird to hear everything as loose as it was maybe it, that was it would sound like everyone else maybe don't know i'll have to ask him if i uh, get, get around to it i've never never it's always really it always really is really interesting when you get to look at somebody else's multi-track isn't it and you can kind of sort of feel like maybe you can get hold I, I remember once we did a uh, mix of um casey and the sunshine band i think it was get down tonight and we got the tape they had to bake it for us and we got it transferred to 16 track and we were listening to it and it was just really brilliant because at the beginning there it sounds like a bunch of well how can i put it uh, ladies of the night wandering in and kind of going oh is that a real wood floor and you know like chewing gum and you can hear all their bangles and big earrings kind of dangling and tinkling and it's just hilarious and then when you kind of actually pushed all the faders up it was just a mush because there was no separation the piano had half the drum kit down it and it was but it sort of didn't matter because it's so vibey i had a similar thing like that with an earth wind of fire type same kind of vibe where half of it had been recorded in one go and half of it had been recorded it overdubbed together you know like all the brass and the piano had all been overdubbed together so it was all bleeding all over itself so it's quite interesting sound but i mean the one thing that i find is like how the hell did they get the record to sound like it did in the end because i mean you know they didn't have the technology and i was just i always found i was thinking willpower how did that happen i did an elton john remix with my brother and elton's got the whole band in the background and the piano in the background of his lead vocal and trying to get rid of everything from the, from the lead vocal track was just impossible. No, you can't do it. Can so you? we had to, I mean, we had to change the way we did the remix and put, and kind of put masking sounds in certain places to mask out the original track. I don't consider of him. He should have, you know, when he was making his records, you think, I know that this is going to be remixed, and maybe I should have sat that sat down properly and done a proper vocal or redone it for you. That's that. He happened. should have redone it. Yeah, that happened. He probably would have taken him about nine seconds, wouldn't it? Because I mean, he's you know. I've heard he's quite a talented individual and hates spending his time in the studio, so just throws it down and goes and uh, has lunch. Whoever mixed it must be an absolute genius, because I can't understand how they could get like a decent, present-sounding vocal from what was on the tape. I mean, it just doesn't... Maybe maybe you got they pulled a fast one and you didn't get the right tape. I've had that before, when you get the multi-track, and it's like, hold on. We did... Um, sorry, this sounds like a bit of a name-dropping session, but we did a... Dave Stewart and Candy Dolfer, there was a track called Lily Was Here. We did a remix of that for America. 
and we went through and we did the whole thing and we were really chuffed you know and we thought oh this is great and then they phoned up and says oh you got the wrong multi that guitar's out of tune we never liked that we had to do it all over again you know because somebody had sent the wrong multi and you sort of wonder maybe sometimes it might have been like one of the original tracking engineers or somebody who had a look in and thinking i don't mine was the best version i'm going to make this difficult for them whether perhaps you got sent something that was a bit of a dud just so that they could kind of kick dig give you a dig in the ribs kind of metaphorically you know Nick said they work very, very fast. But then presumably if you're working really, really fast, you know, afterwards at some point there's a bit where you're kind of, you have to sit down and sift through it and kind of sort it out. Or do they do that at the mix stage? Don't know. Well, the the sessions were, nothing had any plugins on it either. So, which is kind of weird. So that means that they bounced all the session and all the plugins to not need any there at all. Oh, okay. Well, I suppose that means you can work, you know, on the plane or in the hotel room. (laughs) With a pair of headphones, if you absolutely need to, if time is money, that would make sense, I guess. Yeah, I'm guessing that's probably why things are bounced like that, so that you can move between systems and you don't need to worry about it. Mm. But that also means you've decided on the sound that you want yeah, and committed. you're uh, confident enough of it to sort of stick with it as well. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot to be said for that. This was uh, from Rich Hilton, who... Uh, who Unfortunately, couldn't be with us. He's uh, on a plane or just arrived in Tokyo, where I presume he must be doing some kind of chic duty. Um, uh, I can see him online, but uh, he's not responding to anything. I expect he's just sort of crashed out with jet lag. Apparently, it's wicked from uh, from US to Japan. So, But anyway, he sent this thing that was uh, talking paper, and it's uh, basically researchers from uh, Mid-Swedish University have constructed an interactive paper billboard that admits recorded sound in response to a user's touch. The prototype display uses conductive links which are sensitive to pressure and printed speakers. The team envisages that the technology could be used by advertisers, and in the future it might even be employed for product packaging. In fact, they uh, they use the cigarette paper... No, sorry, cigarette packet as something that will then kind of warn you. I suppose every time you open it, it says, oh, you know, sure you should have one. You know, the Jersey General says that it's not a good idea. <laughs> um, it just seems like an opportunity to nag or maybe get a message you're not interested in. But it could, could it be, could you see a use? I was, I was, the only thing I thought would be quite amusing, you could have uh, toilet paper made from it. And uh, it could say something funny at an inopportune moment, perhaps. Any, any use for this in our world? Dave? You, had, you, you were talking about, what, was it manuals or something? Yeah, yeah, we have, you know, a fair amount of partially sighted people. And uh, one guy's been with us, like, right from the beginning. It's been brilliant from that perspective because he'll go, oh, actually, can you provide me with the info in this format or that format? And I just thought it'd be great, you know, if you actually had a physical manual that you could kind of touch, particularly, you know, if the index was Braille or something like that, that you could go to the relevant section and it would talk you through instead of, you know, like he has this problem with simple text where, you know, he has to highlight the section and then get that to talk to him. Um, this could make things a lot easier. Hmm. I love that idea. It sounded like it was quite expensive. They were saying it's quite hard to do it cheaply at the moment. Yeah, but anything that's a prototype is likely to be that case, I suppose. But hmm. as soon as it is cheap, I think the theory is that you're going to get kind of sonic junk mail, isn't it? Things oh. that get in your face when you don't want them to be. This is, um, well, maybe I could do sound design for Sonic D- Junk Mail then. <laughs> you could combine your two loves junk, ma- junk mail and sound design. <laughs> Don't throw this away. Well, I mean, but, I mean, seriously, it just seems like an another, you know, we all sort of moan about packaging and kind of uh, the use of resources. I mean, surely if you're going to have talking packaging, then that's not, not exactly going to be less resources used, is it? Or maybe you'll want to recycle it more because it'll have more intrinsic value. I don't know. Could you imagine what it will be like at the recycling plant as they're sort of <laughs> shoveling it all? It'll be like, ow, Coca-Cola! <laughs> all this sort of stuff going. <laughs> don't have another cigarette. You've had 40 already. <laughs> Workman comps lawsuits. Yeah, oh, God. It's open to a lot of abuse, isn't yeah, it? Isn't it, isn't it? Really? It's sort of sound, one of those things that sounds like a really good idea until you actually put it into practice and think, actually, this was rubbish. What, who thought of this? This has just changed. This has made the quality of life for so many people just worse. <laughs> Hi, this is Dave Smith calling from Surprise, Dave Smith Instruments, wishing the best to Sonic Talk, and congratulations on the 50th episode. Let's go for 100. Bye. Yes, let's go for 100. Hey, you ready, guys? Okay. <laughs> Why not? Anyway, that was uh, Dave Smith. He very kindly rang in and said uh, said that. Say so, thanks, Dave. We're always th- we often talk about Dave stuff because he's he's so good. 
I'm not sure the champagne was such a good idea, Dave. You know? I think it was a brilliant idea. <laughs> <laughs> I could say, uh, really got, kicking in we've, now, is it? We've still, yeah, it's kicking in now. I'm sort of floating. Actually, I'm sort of a couple of feet above the ground. Yeah. Uh, anyway, right, so uh, talking paper. We're not sure that was such a great idea. Another one via Rich was this, uh, you can buy this, um, it's a kind of model that you can make uh, a version of the Edison wax cylinder out of a couple of plastic cups and some cardboard and the needle. And uh, you can get this, uh, uh, well, I'll read the sales blurb, because you can buy it from Audio Cubes for $65. So what's that, about 40 quid or something? Uh, it presents a, the, the Creative Cup Phonograph Kit in Edison style. Uses the same method that Thomas Edison used. However, Cup Phonograph Kit in Edison style is much easier to set up and as effective as Thomas and Edison style. Sounds like they're really trying to avoid any kind of trademark kind of... Uh, issues here edison style sounds like a kind of get workaround doesn't it well what you get is uh, a motor a battery box plastic cups and a needle and an english manual which sounds like it might be a useful um i mean i'm enthusiastic about this because my first introduction to sound was by way of an experiment which was suggested in the back of the children's encyclopedia britannica and it was all about using dressmaking needles and making your own paper cones and then sort of um, put you put this sort of thing you made into the grooves of a, a record on a record player so that it taught you about how sound worked. Oh, I see, yeah. So did you ruin any of your, 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 um, your parents' uh, long players? By Probably all of them, them, yeah. And then I shortly after that I dismantled the record player and started trying to work out how to amplify my violin. Ah, well, that's always it. So uh, all those copies of The Sound of Music destroyed in the name of research. Actually, that's not a bad thing, is it, really? <laughs> how did you know that that was the record? I just had a feeling. I had a feeling, and I, I, I went with my hunch. Um, so, yeah, that looks like fun. Anyway, you can check that out on your audio cubes. Um, that, came, um, that came in via, via Rich. I mean, obviously, something for a rainy day, perhaps you can build that kit and have hours of fun roger lynn on radio four quite remarkable um this basically was an, uh, was a uh, a documentary made by um gary kemp from spandobly or spando ballet as i like to call them or perhaps that should be the other way around uh, anyway he's he's been a big fan of music technology for a long time and he's of the opinion that the lynn drum being essentially the first widely available drum machine that sounded like a real drummer and new sampling kind of changed the face of music uh, I'll just play the introduction because it's, it's quite a kick to get a sort of plummy BBC voice saying the words Roger Lynn. We're now on BBC Radio 4 from Berkeley to the Bronx. In the late 1970s, the sound of music was changing as electronic instruments became increasingly popular. Roger Lynn grew up in California where an ethos of creativity fused with technology had a huge influence on him. He designed a piece of musical equipment which would change the way music was produced and would provide the backing to music over the next 20 years. His inventions were successful beyond his wildest dreams and were warmly received a long way from the California hills where he was brought up and still lives. The electronic music enthusiast and founding member of Spandau Ballet, Gary Kemp, tells the remarkable story of Roger Lynn's drum machines. Did anyone get a chance to listen to it? And what did you think? Because I think there's a very good case for, for basically that prognosis, that, that in fact he is responsible for an enormous amount of um, the, 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 the kind of the shape and colour and direction of, that popular contemporary music has taken since the invention. Yeah, I think what's it, what was interesting is that this kind of holy grail to create a machine that would play drums that sounded like a drum kit as opposed to electronic sound. And I think that's... Um, what was what was interesting about his drum machine was they the sounds were sort of approaching the sounds of a real kit. Yeah, and that was something that that, that hadn't been really been done, and and the fact that he he was trying to build in ways of, of making um, it play like a drummer, so not you know not regimented and not perfectly in time, but in fact what people ended up doing was wanting to have it perfect time yeah no i think you're right there i mean it, it, there are a lot of um there were some sort of fairly heavyweight dudes kind of commenting on this and one of them was uh uh jerry harrison who uh, i think was involved in talking heads is that right he was the drummer and he's been a producer but he had a really interesting kind of theory which is uh, information theory which basically as soon you know as soon as people started using the lindrum and it was regimented in time it meant that drums could be turned up incredibly loud because the brain, the human brain, um, tends to spot difference rather than similarity. Although, you know, once it's recognised a similarity, 
it kind of starts to filter it out from from the perception. So it meant that the drums could be much, much louder and they would immediately or, you know, quite quickly become less important, even though they were louder, so that the music around them would then take on a greater importance. And I just thought that whole... The, they changed the perception of the way that we listen to music because once you are you have that mechanical kind of repetitive nature, you sort of tune that out of your listening experience. Mm. And I thought that was kind of a very interesting point. You basically listen to the gaps and not the beats. Yeah. I think that's what he was saying. PJ, you, you heard it also, didn't you? Yeah, and I think it was interesting what Brian Eno had to say in that when um, he and David Byrne first came in, in contact with the Lindrum, they found it uninteresting because he said, why would I want a machine to do what a real drummer can do? And then he, along with... Um, you know, everyone else decided, well, we can use it to do this more mechanical and robotic backing to our music and give it an entirely different flavor and, you know, possibly that psychological edge that uh, they were talking about in information theory. You know, I've always thought Roger Lynn was an important guy, but listening to that, you sort of think, actually, maybe he has much more of an impact and deserves more credit, um, whether, you know, you, d- you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, than perhaps um, history has given him his due for. I think the saddest thing, thing was the as the MPC story progressed, how he was kind of erased from the in, involvement in it, and that's that's a real shame. Especially listening to all the hip hop guys, still current guys using MPCs. But presumably he must be on a royalty, or was it only for the machine, the original Roger Lynn MPC sixty? It wasn't clear at all whether no, he's on a royalty yeah. still, but he it, it's just the fact he, he's not really involved in it, is he anymore? It's kind of taken on its own life. It almost seems like he's more innovative than that now because with that adrenaline thing, the things that he make it, he makes are going to places that the MPC isn't going to. So maybe Akai refused to implement some of his ideas. Well, that was the thing because, yeah. I mean, he's originally a guitarist and the reason he made it was for accompaniment. Um, but now a lot of his, like you say, his products have, have got a guitar flavor. I mean, they do something for M Audio, don't they? Roger has a, um, is, is it called Black Box? Black Box yeah. Which is kind of mm-hmm. like the adrenaline, but with an audio interface built in. I mean, it's ish, isn't it? It uses some of the algorithms that the adrenaline and the adrenaline two have, but it's built. It's got a USB in audio interface at the same time. So yeah, no, he and Dave Smith are working on a drum machine, aren't they? Oh, that's true. Well, yeah, um, what was it called? Boomchick. Yes, that's right. Yep. They they certainly are. My good friend Dana Bailey, who uh, was Prince's keyboard tech for years, um, said when he originally bought an MPC-60 when they first came out that he would call for tech support on the device to clarify aspects of the manual, and he would get Roger Lynn on the phone. Wow. That he was doing tech support for the, for the device itself, at, at one point anyway. But it was re- weird, really, with, with the Lynn. I have to say something about this as a drummer, because when it came out, I remember seeing a Stevie Wonder program where he was touring around and he was bashing this thing backstage and whatnot. And I was like, that's so cool. First of all, it's Stevie. And secondly, it's an electronic drum thing. And it sounded pretty cool. But then what I found was weird is that the albums that came out using it, it just sounded so regimented. And I mean, I remember buying a Steve Hackett album. I don't know why I bought a Steve Hackett album, but um, I bought it. And it was like, you know, I think it even had a sticker on the front, you know, not featuring a real drummer, featuring a Lynn drum. And it was bloody awful. And then years later, as a drummer, I started trying to play like a machine, rigid, with all the Trouble Funk stuff and the Chuck Brown yeah. stuff. So it's really weird, isn't it? Because, you know, it's almost like the machine dictated how the player should play. And then later on, with the shuffle grooves and stuff like that, again, the machine dictates how the drummer should play. So w- mm. what, were Trouble Funk and, uh, and that, were they all machineries? No, they were real players, but yeah. they were trying to sound like, you know, that go-go rhythm was very machine-like. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Very difficult, though. Oh, I love that stuff. Beautiful. I forgot. Drop a bomb on the White House lawn and all that stuff. Yep. Right on, brother. <laughs> <laughs> it was particularly uh, uh, prevalent in because I used to when I used to go up to London when I was a kid, you know, sort of teenager. It was like the warehouse party scene, which kind of predates the rave sort oh, of yeah. setup. We used to end up kind of going and colonising warehouses and putting on sort of arty parties. And Go Go was really big for the sound systems. There you go. All right. Well, uh, that was, uh, I've forgotten when we started, but that was a good place to end. And I think I'm going to play, oh, if I could just find my mouse. I've got two screens here, which is one of the downsides of having a paperless office. 
I'm going to have to put a PG sticker on this podcast, aren't I? More TV. Okay. Hi, everybody at Sonic State. This is Michelle Moog-Kusa. I'm Bob Moog's daughter, and I am the executive director of the Bob Moog Foundation. And um, I'm just calling to say thanks for uh, the nice tribute. You guys did a, a nice job on that. Although I do have to just remind the, the uh, announcer that it is Moog. Although you guys may have your own British pronunciation, we have a website. You might want to check it out. It's www.moogfoundation.org. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. That wasn't strictly a sort of shout-out for the podcast, but uh, I, I forgot to... I was going to play it earlier, but uh, it was after our final episode of Top 20 Greatest Sins, which obviously the mini Moog was number one. Um, it was really bizarre. Now, this is total fluke. I mean, I like to say it was designed, but apparently we launched, we, we, we made that live on Bob Moog's birthday. Obviously, he's no oh. longer with us. And the day that it came out, obviously, was the, 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 the boys and girls at the Moog factory or the Moog, you know, Moog business headquarters were all sitting down to kind of, you know, remember Bob, have some ice cream and just tell a few stories. And this came along, and it, I think it really kind of touched them. And they, they, so we got quite a few calls and lots of supportive emails. So I just thought I'd play that. And I'd just like to say, you know, yes, I'm terribly sorry about mispronouncing the, the Moog name, but uh, it wasn't me. It was our presenter. The professor has his own <laughs> peculiar eccentric ways. But um, I'm glad you liked it. And uh, it, we, were, we were sort of honoured that we were part of, able to be part of that celebration. Let's move straight on to the status quo and the kangaroo and other rock ap- apocryphals. I know, as musicians, I think we all know of kind of various um, mythical rock and roll happenings, shall we put it like, shall we put it that, you know, we, we all perhaps know about the tent at the side of the stage and Stevie Nicks and the straw, which I won't go into any, any more depth, but I'll put the link in the show notes and you can read it, because I think we have to be careful what we say, obviously. But this book uh, by a chap called John Holmes is uh, a sort of catalogue of all those kind of stories, you know, like kind of status quo on tour and all these kind of tour stories that we probably don't always get to hear and i first wanted to know whether a anybody had ever read this and b if they had i wonder what was missing because we've all got our own little kind of treasure chest of things we're not allowed to say i'll tell you in a couple of weeks because i ordered it this morning Did you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as i saw it i went yep got that gotta get it yeah. really I mean, I'd like to see that as a talking book. I know I downloaded um, something on, from audible.com, which is a, is a place where you can get kind of talking books. And I downloaded, uh, what was it? The, um, that book, what was that book you recommended to me? Tipping Point, Mark. Oh, did you? Yeah, I, I ordered the unabridged version um, by Malcolm Gladwell. And it's read by Malcolm Gladwell. And it's eight and a half hours long. And I'll, have, I'll be honest, he's not the most animated of readers. And I find it very hard to concentrate. I'm trying to get through it. But I really now wish I'd just bought the print version. Because at least I'd be able to see graphs. <laughs> And kind of flip through and just see relevant points because it's tedious to listen to. But anyway, this sort of book on Audible would be very funny, particularly if you had sort of slight, sort of minor dramatizations and kind of sound effects built in. That would be just absolutely <laughs> hilarious. <isn't it? laughs> but I'm, I'm looking at the page now on uh, what is it? I'm on Penguin. It's a Penguin book, and uh, there are various illustrations as well. And there's uh, heard the rumours about Stevie Nicks, cocaine and a straw, and there's an illustration. I think we might, some of us might know what that was about. And uh, fact or fiction, something got me started. Who threw up over, all over Mick Hucknall in the back of a taxi cab? Dave looks like he might know the I answer know, to that, that question. One, yeah. And the next one, did status quo really pose with a dead leather-clad kangaroo? There's just tons of this kind of stuff. So I think... I think urban it's myth. Urban myth, stroke. <laughs> it just sounds like kind of quite reality. a lot. Stroke reality. Does sound kind of funny, doesn't it? Um, I, I mean, and I suppose my next part of the question was, is there anything that you think should be in there? But by its very nature, we obviously can't use any <laughs> can't of this. Can't that bit of the programme. So, so it's a bit pointless me saying it, but it, it looks like quite fun. If you're interested in those kind of tour stories and that sort of thing, then this might be a book for you. I wonder how long this book spe- spent at the lawyers before it was published. That's a good question. I was wondering the same thing, because I was thinking, well, how would you... Uh, well, it's Penguin, so obviously, <laughs> you know, they've got a fairly good organisation behind them. They must have sort of sussed it all out and been sort of fairly careful i wonder also whether they can get away with having kind of pencil illustrations but to sort of turn it into anything else like an audio book with dramatizations or a tv documentary would probably be pushing well yeah that would be wouldn't it that would be pushing it okay that's the voice of reason john and i I totally take that on board and i think you've probably got a very good point 
<laughs> I'll tell you, yes, I think, I think we should probably send it. Maybe what we should do is buy a copy for everybody and have it sent out as part of the sort of 50th episode thank you to everybody. And I will try and remember to do that, although obviously um, I probably won't remember anything after this uh, bottle of champagne. So, <laughs> so you'll have to email me and remind me. But it's an easy promise to make. After half a bottle of champagne? Yeah, after that. Oh, we've done uh, a lot. Oh, oh we no, finished it. No, we've got a third left. Sonic State. Well, there's a few Mac announcements. Um, so we whizzed through those, then we're kind of done, really. So uh, the first one of the new MacBooks went out. I was really excited to see this, even though my MacBook's not that old. It is broken, so maybe I can figure out a way to sort of justify getting another one. But the new MacBooks, they start at uh, 2.2 gigahertz, uh, 2.4, 1440x900 resolution, and the more importantly, they'll take 4 gigs of RAM, which I think is a really major breakthrough, because that's always been one of the things that you know has been a bit limiting, You because know, this one only takes 2. I think the current model, or the model before this, only took 3, which is an awkward number to buy. And now the new ones take 4, and they've got decent um, NVIDIA 8600M GT graphics cards with uh, starting starting at 128 megs, going up to 256. This is all really upsetting. Have you just ordered a MacBook Pro? <laughs> it's turning up today. Oh, oh. <laughs> I've got the same thing. My brother-in-law went out to the MTV Film Awards with um, Miss Winehouse and went to the uh, Apple Store, bought the lot, and then the following day it was announced. But now's the time to buy, because I think this looks like it... I mean, if, assuming that you know, the, the, the hardware's okay and there aren't any kind of production issues, I mean, which I would imagine they're probably fairly sus by now. What's this, third, fourth generation Intel Mac Pro, MacBook Pro? I mean, you could do anything on it, I would think. You know, and with virtualization starting to come into the fore, you know, the, the Parallels version 3 has just come in, and which actually now can um, use accelerated 3D graphics and what have you. So what am I missing out on, then, if I, if I got one of the older ones? I think I've got a 2.3 gigahertz one. You still, you're, you're halfway between, because the base level is 2.2, but the thing you're really missing out on is the ability to put up to 4 gigs of RAM in it. So you can just, if you've just bought one, that would take 3 gigs. So, I mean, it's not... You know, the end of the world by any stretch, but... Right. Uh, so it's not too bad, then. Uh, for those who've been hanging on, listening to me wittering and, and, uh, and getting sort of slightly less coherent, um, I'd just like to say the answer to the question of the Yamaha quiz, if you want to win an MM6 Minimo, is 569. That's a weird number. 569? That's just a weird number. It doesn't divide by 128 at all, No, does it? it's because there are uh, 400 and something uh, patches, then there's uh, 22 drum kits, then there's, uh, uh. you know, it's, it's a combination of things. Um, you can find all this out if you go and visit mm6music.co.uk, but you have to do the adding up yourself. So we've just saved you the effort. Nick, how do the folks at home uh, present the answer to this? If you want to enter this competition, we've got two methods, because we're going to put it up on the site. It's going to be up for a, uh, a couple of weeks. But what you can do is you can send an email to sonictalk at sonicstate.com with your answer. Then I'll know it came via the podcast. And the other one is uh, just go to sonicstate.com forward slash compo forward slash mm6.cfm. And that'll be uh, the page with the, you know, the, the form and all the other stuff on it. Given the usual amount of uh, entries we get into competition, if you enter this, you've got a fairly high chance of actually winning it, so uh, I'd get on with it. <laughs> Obviously, I'd just like to put in the fact that uh, none of us can enter. 569 may well be a prime number. You're after some stats. Can my girlfriend enter? <laughs> well, she can enter, but she can't win. So um, I don't know whether that makes a difference to anybody, but if you win, you'll have win one with a prime number. Things are going rapidly to pot here. I, I don't know how much longer I can keep this up, to be perfectly honest. But I'm doing the best I can under difficult circumstances. Will we get to 51? Yeah, no, 51. We'll be taken off the air. iTunes will pull our feed. What's the other Mac news then, Nick? Uh, the other Mac news was um, Apple have announced Safari on Windows. Which is a kind of strange... I was wondering about this. So, oh, yeah, you fantastic. Can, Safari on XP and Vista. Apparently, Steve Jobs says it's the fastest browser on Windows. But it still only has 4.9% of the browser market. Um, which I suppose ain't too bad. I don't know what Firefox is about, 15 20%. I can't remember what it is now. I, look at the, I, I only find this thing out. If you look at the stats for the site, it tells you it breaks it down by browser. I can't remember what it was um, last time I looked, but... Obviously, they're going... I, I was wondering why you bother, because it's a free product, right? Mm. So what's the kind of... What do you think is the... Um, what's the kind of motivation behind this? Is it just kind of megalomania, or is there a kind of purpose? Sound business purpose. 
But maybe if people get used to that way of working, that they'll sort of consider that it's better than um, explore it and then start to look at other areas of the Mac operating system. Maybe it's for that reason. I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking, you know, because then they can make it look very Mac, Mac-alike and people might sort of think, oh, maybe I'll try a Mac. Mm. Yeah, I, w- I was wondering the same thing, but it doesn't... Mm. And now they've got everything running on Intel, it wouldn't take very much to sort of throw other Mac apps at the PC, would it? Logic. <laughs> Logic back oh, on I the PC. <laughs> Actually, that was one thing that was very interesting about the Faster Than Sound um, um, festival, you know, because we thought everybody's going to be using Ableton Live and, you know, what have you. But with, to a man, every scene and woman, everybody was using Logic. Everybody. Uh, Plaid were using it. Joby, uh, Joby Burgess was using it. Um, Modified Tour Orchestra used Logic in the studio to do their stuff. I mean, literally every single act that had any kind of technology going were using Logic, and I was really surprised at that. Really surprised. We did an interview with Plaid, which will be coming out later when we've edited it, and we're also going to be that we did a talk to them uh, about uh, various instruments and stuff. So we've got another chart coming up for the uh, Top Twenty series. They used Logic. In fact, what they were doing because we when we interviewed them, um, only one of the chaps could talk. So uh, it was uh, Ed Handley was the guy who talked to us. And the other chap, Andy, was working on the set. <laughs> but he was just sat there with Logic and his key. And he, he's saying that they were using more and more, um, at the time anyway, uh, up until this point, they were using the internal synths in Logic, which I thought was quite... I was quite happy to use the internal synths in Logic. And I'm not, like, brown-nosing here either. Uh, until I got hold of Mini Monster. Hey. And now whenever I put Mini Monster into any Logic session and then I try and add any of the... The logic sense they just sound absolutely crap in comparison to it ah. and i don't know i don't know what element of the the sound quality of mini monster that is but it's just, it just makes everything else sound bad so i tend to use lots of instances of mini monster instead now dave you you're not blushing or anything but uh, or maybe you're just thinking you know that code we put in that made sure <laughs> that whenever anyone runs an instance of mini monster in a logic session it makes everything else sound rubbish yes, by some yes. kind of strange <laughs> Into four bit. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> it worked. Your subversive synth. It's fantastic. It's not a bad idea, though. Yeah. Well, no, I'm not sure because I use I, I use the, the instruments in um you know in sessions where analog instruments have been recorded a lot. You know, lots of analog synths have been recorded alongside, and I'll sort of beef them up or add parts because I haven't. You know, I'm just sitting there in my laptop, and they, they sit okay. I mean, maybe it's just a you know a, a testament to the brilliance of the the sound of the Mini Monster, which is now available on Universal Binary. Is that right, Dave? Yes. Good lord. We always like to get a plug in there. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I tell you what, we're probably getting towards the end, but I mean, it's been another great one and a, a, a sort of unique experience for me because I've never done um, a bottle of champagne while doing a podcast. So I hope <laughs> and, I don't get. And it's great. So it's next great. time, I hope I don't get a taste for it because I'm going to balloon. <laughs> This could this could be the beginning of the downfall of me completely. Everything just sort of I go to pot. I've never been the same since that fiftieth episode. <laughs> but thank you very much, everybody. Uh, just like to say, uh, PJ Tracy from Minneapolis. Thank you very much for joining us on this auspicious event occasion thing. Uh, my pleasure. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you're here too. Thank you very much. And also, John Musgrave. Good to have you back. Cheers. Thanks a lot. I uh, hope to hear from you again shortly if you're not too busy. Indeed. And, of course, um, Dave Spears, who's sitting opposite me. Thanks. Thanks for coming in. And thanks for, for bringing the shampoo. Pub? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> for those who don't know, uh, Sonic Towers is actually um, in the basement of the, uh, the high-rise that, we, uh, that our offices are in. Obviously, we're in the penthouse, so we have to get the, the, uh, the lift down. There is actually a public, um, public alehouse, so uh, we might go down and um, maybe talk over some edit ideas for the show. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, and also, Mark Tinley, thank you very much for joining us again. Yeah, thanks. You're welcome. Great. Okay, well, Ooh. I'm going to um, I'm going to sign off, because that was good fun. I've enjoyed myself. Um, even though I, I am actually fondling my, my headphone cable like kind of Catholic worry beads at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know what that says. I, I'm glad I haven't got a body language expert in the room with me. Or maybe Dave is, and he's going to give me a full appraisal when we go to the pub. Yes. Sonic. Statesman. Not called.